We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Hey guys, I am super excited to be back on Urgent Education. Goodness, my hair's looking a little crazy. I just ate a whole bunch of almonds, so hopefully, hopefully I'm not going to be doing weird mouth things because I have almonds in there. But anyway, I wanted to get back to our study on the Second Amendment, and I wanted to make it very plain why the Second Amendment is included in our Bill of Rights why it was considered an, an alien, unalienable right, which means it's a natural right for, from our creator to us. Therefore, no government can take it away. We've talked about that. And it starts with the writs of assistance and the Stamp Act. So what happened is, you know, as um, the colonies progressed, obviously they are attached to Britain. And the ability to rule the colonists that far away was just, quite frankly, presenting a lot of problems. And the colonists were beginning to feel um, a need for more independence, but also more representation, at least if they could not get independence. And so a lot of the people that were here, they were British citizens, they were loyal to their country, but they also saw um, history was repeating itself in that the, the British uh, government, the king, the parliament, they were making laws that were contrary uh, and taking action that were contrary to five essential documents, which I will teach in my uh, uh, upcoming constitutional Constitution 101 classes. I'll start in January. We'll get into all those documents. But there was a, a legal process that was guaranteed the rights of British citizens. It was due process. You had to have a warrant to search a person's property because property was an, an alienable right. It includes your possessions, but also your opinions, your free speech, your thought, thoughts. And they also um, basically could not tax the, the colonies without representation. So what the British uh, Parliament and the King did is they did what's called the Stamp Act. So they dictated to the colonists the products that they could buy, paper, um, ink, uh, some food items, uh, like tea, things like that. And if they did not purchase the items strictly from Britain, they could get in big trouble. Well, now Britain needed a way to make sure the colonists were only using and purchasing uh, their products, which was an attempt to control the, the economy to keep the colonists subject and dependent upon 
Great Britain, and they then were um, issued what's called writs of assistance. And writs of assistance gave uh, agents the right to go into any home without a warrant and to search through the possessions of the homeowners uh, and look for any contraband. A complete violation of the English Bill of Rights, you got the Magna Carta, you got the uh, Charter of Liberties, all of these documents that made it illegal for Britain to do this. Not only were they going in and illegally searching and season, seizing, they were also taking items that didn't belong to them just because they wanted them and it was greed. Uh, they were also raping our women, our mothers and our daughters. And finally, two businessmen that had been severely impacted by these writs of assistance contacted a lawyer, a British uh, lawyer named James Otis Jr. His dad was a lawyer. He was a lawyer. And he didn't like what he was seeing. And he began to write pamphlets. He began to talk to anybody who would listen about the fact that Britain was, um, they were violating the law. And it was tyranny. And so finally, uh, when the, <clears throat> the two businessmen approached him to represent them in a court case, he did. He argued for five, I think it was five hours, on how the writs of assistance were the most evil documents that ever come out of British Parliament. They were not um, law. They should not be legally enforced. They were against British law. And three of the people that were in the court, because it was a packed courthouse, um, the people that heard it were John Adams, Sam Adams, and I don't remember the other one, but it was John Adams who said that the revolution, the Sons of Liberty, were born then, and 15 years later they had matured into true Sons of Liberty. So James Otis Jr. Uh, sparked the seeds which resulted in us um, basically legally framing our independence from Britain in on July 2nd with the Lee Resolution that made the states now sovereign states, not colonies connected to Britain. Then, of course, we had the Declaration of Independence. So all of that is tied to the belief of Britain. Blackstone, one of Britain's um, supreme legal minds, said that the, and we've gone over that in our previous uh, discussions, he said the right to bear arms is an inherent right. It's an unalienable right. Uh, no one can take that away because it wasn't given by man. It's the ability to self-preserve. As things went along and the writs of assistance, the Stamp Act, the Boston Tea Party, like all of these things that occurred, then solidified the Founding Fathers' belief that the right to bear arms is primarily for the protection of ourselves against tyrannical government. Okay, so that was the initial idea that an armed people are much harder to take control over than those that are not armed. So that was the first and primary goal of the Second Amendment. The second primary goal is the ability to protect ourselves against theft, against anyone that would try to enter our property and harm us, okay? But I want you to understand that the Second Amendment was primarily to protect ourselves against a tyrannical government. Therefore, any gun control laws, any regulation 
any attempts to outprice our ability to have and bear arms is actually against the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. And we need to know that. And we don't need to get caught up in emotion when things happen with weapons that are horrible because that's exactly the narrative that certain people want us to have where we might feel compassion for people that have been victims of gun violence. The elitist goal is to disarm the citizens. So it's very, very important to understand that and to know that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we don't have guns. People will run other people over. They will use knives. They'll use hammers. It's not the gun that's evil. It's the heart and its intent that is. Another thing that James Otis Jr. wrote about, which i he's becoming one of my favorite people, um, is he said that for some, the, the tyrannical um, acts of Britain at that time, and, and, and he was persecuted, by the way, for trying to warn people of the tyranny of the writs of assistance. Um, he said, some, it's folly. They are ignorant of history. They're ignorant of the laws. Therefore, there's folly there, and they were mad at him. For other people, they were guilty, meaning they know it was against Britain law, what they were doing, but they were a part of it, and they were guilty. And then you have those with malice whose motive was absolutely tyrannical. And we have the same thing today. That's why I do these urgent education episodes. That's why I'm preparing the materials for the constitutional training that will be both live and on Zoom. That's why I'm doing all of this. I feel like we've got to recapture what has happened because we're going down the exact same road that actually caused us to fight for our independence from Britain. The final act, once you get control of the courts, the final act is to disarm the citizen, guys. There's seven patterns the Founding Fathers saw of how to take over a nation by tyrannical rulers. And the final one is disarming them. So we've got to spread the word. If you get any aha moments when I'm talking, please share them with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors. You know, let's start spreading the word and getting it out. And by the way, all of these are on We the Deplorables podcast. You can go there and listen to the Black Robe Regiment, the BLM stuff, the urgent education I've been doing, the Christian's role in politics. I mean, all of these things are there. Get yourself educated. And so now we're to the point where we've become a country and we made sure that we have the Second Amendment the right to bear arms in our legal documents. But there were also early legislative acts. So let me, um, out of the book, The Second Amendment by David Barton, let me read to you a little bit about this. The views held by early Americans on the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms were a reflection of the views previously established by experience and decades of tradition, and then finally incorporated by law into their own states. These early laws provide the third source, which affirms that the right to keep and bear arms pertains to every individual citizen. Consider, for example, a 1623 Virginia law that prevented a citizen from traveling unless he was, quote, well armed. In 1631, Virginia required, quote, that men go not to work without their arms. All men that are fitting to bear arms shall bring their pieces to the church and upon pain of every offense, pay two pounds of tobacco. Now, let me, (laughs) this is crazy. If you went to church without your weapon and you were caught, you had to pay two pounds of tobacco. Now, you know, just the irony of that in itself is interesting, but that is crazy. 
1658, Virginia required every householder to have a functioning firearm within his house. And in 1673, the law provided that a citizen who claimed that he was too poor to purchase a firearm would have one purchased for him by the government, which would then require him to pay for the weapon at a reasonable price when he was able. And then in 1676, law declared that, quote, liberty is granted to all persons to carry their arms wheresoever they go. In other words, it's open carry. So how is it that I have to do a concealed carry class to carry my weapon? Why? Why can't I have open carry? Now, in New Mexico, it's open carry. I can carry wherever. Um, in Texas, it's open carry, Arizona. But why do I have to go to that class to conceal my weapon? That doesn't make any sense. What's the difference between me having open carry and me concealing it, right? So we, ha we always have to understand the source that's making these laws. And that's not a representation of my beliefs. I don't know, like, what, what does it matter, right? Well, what matters is they now have your name. Same thing with background checks. So it's very interesting, all these regulations, which could actually be challenged in court. I don't have to give you a reason for having my weapon. I don't even have to inform you that I have a weapon. But because of laws and because of people not understanding our history, as well as um, the, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, we now have laws that say I cannot, as a female, as a male, whichever it is, carry my weapon concealed. Unless I take a class, I register, blah, blah. And I think it's crap. Now, the New Plymouth uh, Colony in 1632 required, quote, that each person have peace, powder, and shot, when peace is P-I-E-C-E, so a weapon, a sufficient musket or other serviceable piece, and be at all times furnished with two pounds of powder and ten pounds of bullets. In fact, so serious was this colony about them having their weapons that established the following fines for those who were not armed. If they didn't have a weapon, it was six shillings. Um, if they didn't have a sword, it was two. If they didn't have powder, it was five. And if they didn't have enough bullets, it was uh, two shillings. In 1639, the Newport Colony required that none shall come to any public meeting without his weapon. And then in 1650, Connecticut ordered that citizens, quote, be always provided with and have in readiness by them half a pound of powder, two pound of serviceable bullets or shot, and two fathom of match to every matchlock upon the pil uh, penalty of five shillings a month for each person's default. And Georgia felt it necessary in 1770 for the better security of the inhabitants to require every resident to, quote, carry firearms to places of public worship. I think it should be the same thing for schools, that the school teachers and the staff should be armed. Not only do these early laws recognize the right of every citizen to keep and bear arms, they further reveal that every private individual citizen was considered a part of the public defense. So that's important. If you, if the citizens didn't have weapons, if they were invaded, which we were by Britain, then they wouldn't be able to help in protecting the nation. And so the ability to protect your city, your church, your home, your state, your county was dependent on the citizens having weapons. And they didn't care if you liked it or not. If you didn't have a weapon, if you were a man and you did not have a weapon in your home, you could get in legal trouble. That's a far cry from today. 
And I can guarantee you, I will have my weapon on me somewhere. So that, you know, at church, I'm going to have my weapon on me. If I go to a store, I'm going to have my weapon on me. Uh, if I'm traveling, I will have my weapon on me. At home, I have my weapon on me. That's how it should be. And I get, you know, where they're like, well, you don't want in a bar because people get drunk and then start shooting each other. Okay, that's fine. But I'm going to have my weapon on me anywhere else. And so that was law for these people. Where now we give you a choice. If you don't like weapons, you don't have to have them. Back then, you better have them. It's very interesting. Now, the militia. See, this is this is important to understand, too. Richard Henry Lee, who is the one that brought the Lee Resolution, which changed the colonies into states independent of Britain, he said that uh, on the Second Amendment, he was one of the original framers, the militia shall always include, according to the past and general usage of the states, all men capable of bearing arms. Now, militia in the Second Amendment was understood by the Founding Fathers. It's in their own words, in their writings, in the Federalist Papers. Just read them. Uh, in the Second Amendment, militia was understood to be every individual citizen rather than just an army or organized military. In other words, I by myself am militia. That's how the Founding Fathers uh, viewed it. You... If you have a weapon, and if you were required back then, you were a militia. So, of course, you can join forces and be a militia, um, but it was individual as well as collective, but it wasn't the, just an organized army. Every citizen was expected to be their own militia. Uh, he also said a militia are, in fact, the people themselves and are, for the most part, employed at home in their private concerns. Uh, Tench um, Cox, Attorney General of Pennsylvania, excuse me, of Pennsylvania and Assistant Secretary of the Treasury under President George Washington said the militia are the people at large. Sam Adams said the militia is composed of free citizens. George Mason, a delegate to the Constitutional Convention and father of the Bill of Rights, said who are the militia? They consist now of the whole people. So they wanted everyone armed. Uh, when the U.S. Congress passed the first federal law on this subject, the Militia Act in 1792, it defined militia of the United States not as the Continental Army or any other organized military body, but rather as including almost every adult male in the U.S. Under that act, so the Militia Act of 1792, each adult was required by law to possess a firearm and a minimum supply of ammunition and military equipment. And this law continued in force into the 20th century. Isn't that interesting? In fact, the current law still states the militia and the United States consists of all able-bodied males at least 17 and under 45 years of age. So again, the militia is all of us as individuals and collectively. I mean, there's so many things on that alone. Now, the federal constitution, it wasn't formed in a vacuum. Okay, so again, it was a history. From 1060 on, there were preceding legal documents our founding fathers used as the basis of our constitution. Uh, now, it cannot reasonably be argued that the Second Amendment established a concept touching the right of citizen self-protection contrary to that which existed in the nation at that time. Um, now, so the delegates that were sent to the Constitutional Convention, 
One of the signers, Eldridge Jerry, uh, he signed both the, the Declaration of Independence and uh, he actually refused to sign the Constitution. Um, and, and that's a whole deal. The Constitution came in uh, 1789, if I'm not mistaken, and there was a lot of argument about it because they were afraid it was going to begin to erode our rights. So that's where the Bill of Rights came in. So a lot of the original signers refused to sign it until the Bill of Rights was added and ratified uh, by vote. He said the ratification of the Constitution in several states would never take place had they not assured that the objections would have been duly attended to by Congress. And I believe many members of these conventions would never have voted for it if they had not been persuaded that Cong Congress would notice them with candor and attention which their importance uh, requires. In other words, we had a promise that the Bill of Rights would be adopted, and so they signed. Uh, in the Massachusetts, well, and, and let me back up. One of the promises, get this, is that Congress would never disarm any citizen. So tell me about these red flag laws. I understand the, the argument behind it. Okay? I get it but it is a violation. Congress has no right to ever disarm any citizen, ever. Now, if they're maybe of, um, like, I don't know, you know, a man that has the mindset of an eight-year-old, absolutely that person should not have a weapon. Just like children shouldn't have weapons to play around with, neither should um, people that don't have the mental capacity for it. But here's the other thing. People back then, the kids were shooting at the ages of eight, seven, for their food. So we have a totally different environment now um, when it comes to weapons, training children, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's see. Uh, in the Massachusetts Convention, it says that the said Constitution be never construed to prevent the people of the United States who are peaceable citizens from keeping their own arms. New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania, they all agreed that no law shall be passed for disarming the people or any of them. Um, Virginia, New York, Rhode Island said that the people have a right to keep and bear arms, that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of people trained to arms is a proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. In 1789, Albert uh, Gallatin, one of the framers of PA's proposals for the Bill of Rights, uh, a U.S. representative and senator under President George Washington, the Secretary of Treasury for Presidents Jefferson and Madison, declared that the whole of that Bill of Rights is a declaration of the rights of the people at large or considered as individuals, so that the people at large and as individuals, it establishes rights of the individual as inalienable. In other words, they come from God, therefore no man can take them away. Fisher Ames, one of the original framer of the Bill of Rights, of the Second Amendment in the First Congress said, if a Bill of Rights is violated, there, there every injured citizen may expect and will have more complete redress than an army of insurgents could give him. No act can have the force of law against the Bill of Rights. Every framer ought to read it and learn its nature and value. He will prize it more than his acres, for without it, another man reaps where he sowed. In other words, we have to know the Bill of Rights. I understand the Constitution. You got Article One, that's for the legislative body. You got Article Two for the President, Article Three for the Supreme Court, Article Four. I can't remember. You know, you got excise taxes, blah blah blah. I mean, there's a lot to it, but the Bill of Rights is short. So, learning it 
understanding it is crucial. Thomas Jefferson said a Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth, general or particular, and what no just government should refuse. So if people start eroding our Bill of Rights, they are not just. If you look at the Twitter thing that's happening, where they censored Americans, they violated the First Amendment, people should be fined and go to jail for that because you are not supposed to censor citizens. If you say you're not media, then don't censor us. If you're media, you're censoring us. That's, that's the reason they have those extra rights. And so the fact that we have people violating that Bill of Right, the right of free speech, they're not just. The fact that the White House had them do it is illegal and it is censoring and it's a violation of the Bill of Rights. I can say any crazy thing I want to say. And as long as it does not spark hatred or harm against another, I can say it. I can say that aliens are real and I have one living in my closet. I can lie through my teeth and I can be protected because of the Second Amendment or the First Amendment. Same thing with the Second Amendment. No one has a right to take my weapon. No red flag loss. So we've got to understand these things or they're going to keep eroding them. They're going to outprice them and they're going to tax them to where we can't afford them. James Madison said, among the advocates for the Constitution, there are some who wish for further guards to public liberty and individual rights. As far as these may consist of a constitutional declaration of the most essential rights, it is probable that they'll be added. Uh, he also said in the first Congress, I believe that the great mass of the people who opposed the Constitution disliked it because it did not contain effectual provisions against encroachments on particular rights. But whatever may be the form which the several states have adopted in making declarations in favor of particular rights, the great object in view is to limit and qualify the powers of government by accepting out of the grant of power those cases in which the government is not supposed to act. Every government should be disarmed of powers which trench upon those particular rights. Those rights are outlined in the Bill of Rights. Okay? So, based therefore on the individual protections appearing in each amendment, it is illogical to assert, as do gun control proponents, that the Second Amendment should be the only amendment not to protect an individual right. Clearly, the records prove otherwise. Okay, so then why, you have to ask yourself, why do they want to take these rights away? Why do they want to take away free speech? Why do they want to take away freedom of religion? Why do they want to take away your right to carry arms? Why do they have an individual tax upon the citizens when that's unconstitutional? Only in cases of war, which then should make you wonder, why are we always at war? Why did we end the one in Afghanistan and now we're in one in Ukraine? And why are we supporting a ruler in Ukraine who just shut down churches that do not agree with his politics? Why are we sending billions to the most corrupt government in the earth? and one of the most corrupt leaders. I'm just curious. These are questions I ask, and I think all Americans should ask them. Why does this administration free a basketball star who actually had marijuana in her pipe, which is against Russia law? Why did they free her when the Kremlin said you can have her or Wellen, a Marine that's been there for four years, for simply going to his friend's wedding? I don't know, maybe like attracts like. She hates America, so is our government at this time. I don't know. 
but they left him there. So we need to ask questions. We need to challenge what we're being told. We need to understand that the narrative is written by those that have agenda. And if you know what the original founding fathers and the history that they had, then you, you'll understand what's happening. Patrick Henry said, how can I properly judge the future if I do not know the past? We need to judge our present and our future, where this country is going, by understanding and knowing the past. And that's very easy to do. Anyway, Constitution uh, 101 classes, we're going to dive into the origin of the Constitution, the origin of liberty, what it actually means. We're going to go into who actually has the most power. We're going to go into the Black Robe Regiment, the role of Christians today. So many good things, so many good things that I've got in store. So more information will be coming soon on that. I'm going to be setting the date hopefully in the next week. Uh, we'll start January 2023. Again, Zoom and in person. I hope to see a lot of you there. Share these videos. We add them to our podcast pretty quickly because I don't trust um, Facebook to not take them down. And uh, hopefully if they do, you can go on over there and listen to this. All right. I will see you guys next week. Don't forget Daniel Company, training for marketplace ministers. I do every week and then urgent education every week. Have a great weekend. Small is the new big. God is shifting from the current church structure back to his original intent and design, the ecclesia. The ecclesia is the original word that was used when Jesus was describing that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it in Matthew 16, 18. In fact, most of the time when you see church, it's actually ecclesia. The ecclesia is his ruling government on earth made up of two or more. It's a mobile organic community, not a system. If you felt like a square peg trying to fit in a round hole, or you know there's more, this training might be for you. If you know that God is moving in the marketplace and you want to be equipped to partner with him, this training is for you. If you understand that the call is to disciple nations, you must be equipped with this training. Go to churchshift.me. That is churchshift.me.